0: You're listening to The Real Well Show with Kathy Fetke, the real estate investor's resource. It's that time of year again when economists announce their forecasts for the coming year, and they get to be held accountable for their last year's predictions. I'm Kathy Fetke, and welcome to The Real Well Show. Today, we have Fannie Mae's Chief Economist, Doug Duncan, joining us again to share his 2019 forecast and to see if his 2018 economic forecasting was accurate. And he's very honest about that. Doug, welcome back to The Real Wealth Show. It's great to have you here.
1: Thank you. Thanks for inviting me.
0: Well, this is the time of reckoning where we get to look at the year in review and what you forecast back in January and how it turned out. You want to do that?
1: Yeah. Uh, (laughs) Sure. Accountability, you know? Right. Um, We actually judge ourselves on uh, two or three levels. And so I'll kind of walk through that a little bit. One is we, we usually pick a theme that we think will capture the important elements that need to be understood in the coming year. And our theme this year was fiscal policy and the Fed stimulus response. And the point was at the end of last year, there was a tax cut passed, that was going to change the nature and level of economic activity and then the Fed was going to respond to that in some way. Now, So I feel pretty good about that theme. I think that all ended up being true. Lots of discussion about the Fed's actions in addition to the speed up in economic growth, which occurred as a result of the tax cut, at least in part. There was a piece of fiscal policy that we didn't specifically talk about at the beginning of the year in detail which was, of course, trade discussions and the tariffs. And so those discussions and the Fed's actions over the course of the year meant that our macro forecast was pretty good. I think we're within a couple of tenths of what we said we thought growth would be. And, of course, the fourth quarter data is not all final yet, but it's looking pretty much like what we thought, maybe 2.2% growth. So full year growth, a little over 3%. I think that's going to be a pretty good forecast on the macro side. So the theme was pretty good. The macro is pretty good. The housing forecast, I'm not happy with our housing forecast. Housing responded more strongly to the interest rate increases on the purchase side than we thought. The refi side, not too bad. That's the easier part to forecast. If rates go up, fewer people can benefit from refinancing because of the difference between the market rate and their current mortgage rate. So not too much of a surprise on the refinance side. But, on the purchase side, we'd actually forecast for about a two and a half percent increase in home sales, and it looks like it'll be more like two and a quarter percent decrease in home sales. So in the latter part of the year, where interest rates rose fairly strongly, there was a pretty big reaction on the demand side of the housing market. So what you see today you've seen some headlines in the last month. everybody's optimistic because supply is up well, that's actually. A little bit of a chimera. The only reason supply looks bigger is because demand shrank. And the way people talk about supply in the housing market is, how many months will it take to sell currently listed properties at the current pace of sales? But if the current pace of sales slows down and the number of houses stay the same, it's going to look like supply went up, when in fact the actual number of houses for sale didn't change much at all. So what that suggests, if were we to see a decline in interest rates again, then we'd have just as tight of inventory as we had before because we're still building a couple hundred thousand units less than what is needed to meet our current demographic. So I'm not too happy about our call. Uh, we were off by about five percentage points on home sales and our forecast was on the high side. But, you know, I'm, I'm all about transparency. So <laughs> we're, we're going to work and see if we can make it better next year rates went up a little further than, than we thought, but that's not a good excuse. So that would be my self-assessment. You know, I get maybe an A minus, a B plus, and a C. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you know, and in, in today's environment, I would say that's pretty darn good. I was on a national TV show recently and, and uh, they kind of asked me to do a year in review. And I just said, I think this is the year we'll look back and say there were such opposing agendas. It was very difficult to predict anything. You know, Just like you said, yeah. we have a stimulus going on with the tax cuts, but then we've got a tightening with the Fed. Uh, so mm-hmm. what is it? We're, we're trying to create jobs, but we have job openings. We have low unemployment. I mean, would you agree that there's these opposing forces that make it very confusing?
1: Yeah, absolutely. No question. And that's why we had the stimulus response part of our theme is the fiscal policy was basically stimulative, but monetary policy was becoming more restrictive. So the question is, how do those things interplay? And, you know, we knew that rates would go up. They didn't really go much further than what we thought, maybe a quarter, maybe 25 to 40 basis points over our January forecast for this time of the year. But one of the things I think that is a little different, and it's always tempting to say, well, this time is different, but there is (laughs) one thing that is... If you were 22 years old and graduating from college in 2009 at the end of the recession, then for the next seven years, the Fed funds target was basically zero. And mortgage rates ran around uh, within a narrow band around about three and three quarters percent interest rate for a 30 year fixed rate. Then in this last year, it went up a whole percentage point and you're going now you're 32 instead of 22, and you're thinking about buying your first house, and you're like, Well, what happened?
0: Why why do I have to pay these interest payments? What what is this?
1: (laughs) And and why did rates go up so much? Well, that means they don't have the historical perspective that says since World War II, the average 30 year fixed rate mortgage rate is about 6%. So interest rates are still quite good relative to the historic average, much less to a high level. There's this lack of perspective from a historic perspective.
0: So do you think that the slowdown based on that, that you know, interest rates really are low compared to history, so since rates are low, do you think it's just payment shock or is it really lack of ability to afford that higher rate?
1: I, I think it's two things. I think it is payment shock that people are like, wow. And then they've also, part of it is psychology because they were in college during the crisis and some of them saw family members take economic damage. They saw friends and neighborhoods take some economic damage in the housing sector. And so they're, they're reading these articles about the slowdown in housing, and they're going, oh my, are we going to have another crash? Mm-hmm. So I think part of it is psychology. Let me give you one other data point from the data that we actually collect through our surveys. We survey, as you know, 1,000 households a month. And out of all the questions, we were interested primarily in what's the attitude about people who are thinking about buying a house. So we have created what we call the Home Purchase Sentiment Index. And there are six key questions. All this is up on the web. It's available. We show you the formula, everything. All we do is collect the next month's data and update. So back two months ago, two of the questions kind of brought uh, crystallization of our thoughts. One of them is, is it a good time to buy a house? The other one, is it a good time to sell a house? And whichever way they go on either of those questions, we give them some why, which of these things is most important in you having that attitude. So for the first time, for those who answered it, no, it's not a good time to buy a house, it's a bad time to buy a house. The top reason they cited was house price. Now, that had never happened before, and at that same time, when we asked those who said it's a good time to sell a house, we asked them why, the number one reason for the first time was house price. So we thought about that for a little while, and we concluded, I think correctly, that yes, I've got a lot of equity in my house because the uh, house prices have been rising, but if I sell my house, I'm just going to give that equity away to the next person that I buy a house from. So why would I want to make the trade at all? all right. So when you look at why are existing homes listed for sale at 30-year lows, that has to be part of the reasoning. People are saying, you know what? I know what I've got. I own it. I'm staying put because if I take the equity out and put it into another bigger house, we, I just give it away again. So that's part of it. Then this psychology of younger borrowers who saw the damage and said, all the headlines are saying housing is slowing, I don't want to buy a house, and then the price falls and I'm underwater, don't want to do that. So I think that's a piece of it too. And the payment shock.
0: So coming back to the psychology, I had uh, somebody come to our event in San Diego who had heard me on TV that day, so wanted to come and check it out. And he had that exact opinion. He said, why would I go out and buy a property in San Diego today when I could pay half the price in a couple of years for that same property? And I looked at him and I said, if you think you're going to be paying half the price <laughs> in a couple of years, I think you're going to be waiting an awfully long time because that may never happen. I mean, do you see that possibility of you know another housing crash like we had in 2008?
1: I don't. And there are Two or three reasons for that. One is, as I mentioned earlier, we're still building perhaps 200,000 too few houses to house the current population. We still have close to a historical level of young adults living at home. All that's going to unfold into households, and we need to build apartments and houses to house them all. So, if there's a supply shortage, it's awfully hard to see how you can get a price collapse. Now, that doesn't mean prices will continue appreciating at the pace that they are. In fact, we're seeing the pace of price appreciation slow. But that's simply going to improve affordability for those households who've been pushed to the sidelines by the rise in interest rates. If price appreciation slows, then there's no sense in which they're worried about getting in the market and making a risky transaction just to get into the market. They're going to make a more solid financial decision about how the purchase of a house fits into their family budget and finances. So that's one thing. Second thing is while mortgage underwriting criteria, that is the borrower risk analysis, the standards have eased from the very tightest level post-crisis, they're nowhere near where they were in the 2004, or 5, 6 time frame in terms of easy underwriting. They're much stronger. And when we look at the loans that we've originated in the last four or five years, we look at something called early payment default. That is, in the early part of the life of a loan, the probability is highest that that household will not be able to sustain those payments. And the early payment default rate on the last five or six years of loans is historically low, meaning that the risk of, even in an economic slowdown, the risk that those people will not be able to pay their mortgage is much lower than prior to the crisis. So we just don't see the conditions in place for a house price collapse. Now, that's, you know, if there were some other catastrophic economic event broad-based in the economy... And unemployment went to 20%. Of course, that's a whole different world. <laughs> uh, and that's, that's not a function of housing. And right?
0: can, can you speak to that? Because we know that corporate debt is at all-time highs with interest rates rising. There could be defaults possibly. I mean, we're all running around like scared chickens trying to make sure that we don't lose everything again, especially since some of us are older and don't want to take losses. So should we be concerned about corporate debt?
1: Well, most of the corporate debt that's out there is at very low interest rates. Some of it is with weak underwriting criteria. So if we go into a recession, there will be some corporate losses. Is it broad-based enough to suggest it's going to be a deep and severe recession? Uh, I don't think so at this point. I think the the bigger issue that faces the economy going forward is the accumulation of debt at the federal and state government level, primarily at the federal government level because that eventually has to be repaid and with rising interest rates the burden of repaying that increases substantially that has the potential to significantly slow economic growth and therefore income growth i actually see that as the bigger risk than a level of corporate indebtedness at the moment
0: well that's interesting you say that yeah explain it because i believe our president said he's not worried about it so you know, we've just managed to just have a booming economy with massive debt. So, how are we going to deal with that?
1: Well, there's really only three or four things you can do to defease that debt. But one is you can balance the budget or run a surplus. Now, how do you do that? Either you cut expenses or you raise taxes or both. Or in the short run, you can fool capital market participants by inflating. But they now are pretty smart about inflation, and they will require higher yields if they believe that you're going to inflate the currency to try to cheapen the payback. They're going to require higher yields and an inflation premium to do that. So that capital markets will constrain that pretty fast. So that brings you back to either raising taxes, cutting expenses, or some combination of both. And I think that's where you're going to hear the acrimonious debate as usual in the Washington environment as the various forces who are advocates for either one or the other of those options. The other fly in the ointment is it's not that it's just the debt that we have and how it's being added to by the imbalance between tax revenues and expenditures. It's also the case that our entitlements are not fiscally sound into the future, and they need to be reformed, or they will multiply that debt going forward. Because given the current level of benefits through the two easiest to reform, Social Security and Medicare, they will both, within the next decade... Or so, unless there's a change in benefits or the tax proceeds to fund those benefits, they will be paid for out of the general treasury, and that will be very expensive. So, that's the other fly in the ointment. Usually I give these comments before uh, happy hour just because a lot of people feel the need.
0: (laughs) It's morning and I've already got my vodka. Just kidding. Um. Right.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That is the truth. But you can grow. The other thing you can do is set in place... The conditions for rapid economic growth. And you mentioned the president earlier, and that's one of the arguments that he has made is that his approach to policy was intended to accelerate growth. And it has accelerated in 2018 relative to 2017 relative to 2016. So that is true. But at the same time, we're also adding to the outstanding debt. So it's a, it's a kind of a half a loaf.
0: Well, it's the opposite of what you were saying we need to do. We didn't raise taxes, we cut them.
1: If we could get the growth and reduce the debt and deficit, that's the optimal place to be.
0: Yeah, nobody wants to do that.
1: (laughs) It's, uh, you know, there's a a lot of interest groups around Washington, (laughs) D.C.
0: Right, yeah. So uh, I'm guessing there'll be another round of quantitative easing if needed. but
1: Possibly, yeah. Yeah, I I think that the Fed... To turn to monetary policy for a little bit, the Fed is, as always, working without complete information. You you don't know what you don't know about the future. They're attempting, in my mind, the right thing, which is to try to move interest rates to a position where they're not either driving or slowing economic activity, but they're simply a reflection of the current level of economic activity and the beliefs of participants in capital markets on what's the appropriate pricing for risk and inflation. And the Fed is attempting to return monetary policy to a more normal posture in that sense. I think they must, and they are. Um, It's difficult to do, given, for example, your comments on concern about corporate debt. Every time they change the rate spectrum, that has an impact at some point down the road from where they make that change. And there are winners and losers in that. And monetary policy is a very blunt instrument. So the changes in rates affect different sectors based on, uh, at least in the first round, their interest rate sensitivity. Housing is one of those industries that is interest rate sensitive, particularly in the short term. And we're seeing that the second half of 2018 was clearly a response to the rise in rates that took place as a combination of the fact that the Fed was tightening monetary policy and that economic growth prospects were improving. So the demand for credit in the marketplace rose, meaning interest rates rose along with it. So the Fed's got a, they have a very tough job after a very long period of of abnormal monetary policy execution. To try to return to a more normal monetary policy execution, there's some parts of it that have never been tried before. For example, the Fed's portfolio of mortgage-backed securities, they've never done that in modern history. And its effects are, to some degree, unknown.
0: So I think I am going to open up that bank in Switzerland. (laughs) uh, uh, Anyway. you know,
1: that's interesting you should should raise Europe, because today... What are the things that's holding interest rates as low? And you've noticed they've come back down over the last 30 days to some some degree. They'd gotten up to around three and a quarter for the 10-year treasury. It's back down now to about 2.9, something like a 45 basis point decline. Part of that has to do with not necessarily Switzerland, but Europe, because of the discussion of how the UK will exit the European Union, and then behind that, The pressure that Italy is placing on the European Union to give it some special exemption and what's going on in France with regard to uh, Macron's attempt to rationalize certain parts of their economy, that's led to a flight to quality over concerns about the slowing growth and the disruption that could occur from those three things. And that's led people to put money into the U.S. capital market, driving down interest rates in our market. So there are global events underway that are affecting the US economy directly. And the other one, of course, which we mentioned earlier is tariffs. And you can see each day as the commentary is made about whether there's progress being made or no progress being made, rates move based on that. That is a clear risk factor in the market today because of its, the expectations of what it means for economic growth and incomes.
0: Okay, well, let's come back to uh, US housing. And that's kind of where I like to hide in all of this. At the end of the day, people do <laughs> like to live indoors. So, <laughs> mm, yep. Like I said, everybody's running scared, fearful that we're going to go through another 2008. And I keep saying the same reasons you just said that housing has been on solid ground. I do still hear people saying, oh, but people are doing these risky loans again and and tapping into their home equity with record equity lines. And I'm not seeing that, but are you?
1: Well, there has clearly been a pickup in cash out refinancing, but it's nowhere near what we saw in the bubble period. So in our business, that is Fannie Mae's business, with the rise in interest rates, refinancings have fallen significantly but the share of remaining refinancings which are for the purposes of cash out has been rising as a share of total refinancing however the dollar the actual dollar volume of cash out refinancing has been declining just not as fast as total refinancing so we've seen that but we have some pretty strong standards about the uh, your financial condition uh, if the loan is going to become guaranteed by Fannie Mae, our underwriting on cash-out refinancing was significantly strengthened from the bubble period. In addition to that, there is a tax provision which is affecting the appetite for cash-out refinancing for refinancing as well, and that is, if you do tap equity in your property, it has to be reinvested in the house, or else the interest expense on that is not tax deductible. So I don't know how the IRS will check that, but if you want to be in compliance with the tax law, then if you're taking equity out of your house in a cash out refinancing and you're buying a car, the interest on that component is not tax deductible. So there are some changes from that perspective that in my mind will also tamp Down the uh, cash out refi piece, and it's clearly well below what it was uh, in the bubble period. So, I don't actually think that's such a huge issue.
0: Okay, yeah, I didn't think so. Okay, and finally, we know that the cost to build has increased, Uh, the tariffs have uh, driven up cost of supplies in some cases. Uh, We know that labor costs have gone up and permit fees. So, we've been buying houses under the $200,000 mark, homes that are you can buy existing homes for cheaper than it would cost to build and staying in that affordable range for rental property. What do you think about that plan?
1: I think that's a good plan. There's The single family rental business has a long history and there are actually millions of houses in that category. So I think you you mentioned people like to live indoors. One thing I always say about whether real estate's a good place to be is it's always been the case that people lived in a structure built on land somewhere in proximity to where they worked in a structure built on land. I don't see that ever changing, right? So we, real estate goes through cycles, but at the end of the day, it's where humans live and work. So it's going to exist and, and be an asset class that's worth having in your portfolio. Now, I have two or three things on the affordability front. One is part of the reason the tax bill contain some of the components that it did is that one of the people in the administration was party uh, to writing a paper on the theory of what happens if you eliminate the mortgage interest deduction. And the theory is pretty clear that what will happen is, except for people who are very high wealth, where they may still take on some debt, the amount of debt that's tax deductible, or irrespective of whether it is tax deductible, because they just have so much money that that's not a concern. The average household will, in different levels of the income spectrum, will reduce their consumption of housing. What that suggests is that the price of houses at the high end will decline, but the price of houses at the low end will rise as people shift their consumption of housing. So it's very possible that one of the things that will happen for investors in the price range that you're talking about is they will see more capital gains than what they thought as a result of the change in the tax law because we can now see in the jurisdictions where the state and local tax component of deductibility was restricted, we can see the high-end house prices start to deteriorate in some of those markets. And what that means is people are doing exactly what I just said. They're moving their consumption down to lower levels of housing. So that's a a little bit of a byproduct. Two other things to think about. When you are thinking about affordability, I talked earlier about the lack of supply in the existing home market. Well, over the last 30 years, we've seen the rise of women's participation in the workforce. So now you've got a household that has two incomes. It's harder to relocate a household which has two incomes to a different jurisdiction than it is to relocate a household with one income, because now you got two matches that you have to make, not just one. And if their housing choice is predicated upon having two incomes, they can't make the move until they've secured both matches. And if you look at mobility data, it's been in decline for probably 30 years. That's pretty highly correlated with the rise of two-income households. In addition to that, that rise in two-income households has shifted so that house prices are now predicated on two incomes, and if you're a one-income household, that could be a problem for you. So the affordability problem has shifted a little bit just from the gross production of income to how that income is produced, and the constraints the income constraint is really on one income households these days in terms of affordability because if you compare the median household income from a two income household to median house prices in its market it's pretty close to the long term normal so in that part of the market there's not really an affordability issue some jurisdictions you know san jose or you know there's a few jurisdictions where that's not true but broadly across the country that's pretty back to normal the problem is with only one income I don't think, it's that clear to me that there's been a broad appreciation of that shift, a uh, sociological shift, and its economic implications in the housing market.
0: Fascinating. All right. Well, Doug Duncan, thank you so much for sharing all your research and insights with us here on The Real Wealth Show. Really appreciate it.
1: Hey, my pleasure. Good talking to you.
0: And thank you for joining me here on The Real Wealth Show. I'll be giving my predictions for the 2019 housing market at our upcoming live event on January 12th in San Mateo. That's right by the San Francisco airport. And on January 13th in LA, right next to the LAX airport. This is one of our most popular events of the year because my husband also speaks. Rich Fetke will be giving his ever popular Focused Investor Seminar. You will learn incredible tips about how to have the best year yet and how to stay focused on your goals so that they actually happen. I've had a lot of people tell me it has changed their lives to hear this presentation. So definitely make the trip out to either San Francisco or LA if you can. Again, I'll be giving my predictions at both events and we'll be featuring some new exciting Opportunity Zone stuff. You can find out more about that at realwealthshow.com. Have a wonderful rest of your day. Thanks for joining me. Bye-bye.